This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Professor Awais Rashid. He's director of the Center for Doctoral Training in Cybersecurity at Bristol University. He's author of the Human Factors Knowledge Area. The fundamental idea here is that technologies do not exist in isolation from people. Of course, we we often think that you know humans are um, mere users of of computing systems or computing devices, but in fact computers or technologies and humans intersect with each other in lots of complex ways. So let's take as an example, for instance, that passwords, which we use on a daily basis. The challenge there is the complexity that you have of, for example, remembering different password policies, remembering your password, typing in your password multiple times every time you go away from your desk and so on and so forth. Yes, that is all quite part of the security practices that might might exist, but equally it intercepts and interferes with the daily task of the human. And that's why we often see the kind of examples that arise that people try to write down passwords or they reuse passwords. It's not because necessarily people want to be insecure. It's just that they're trying to get the job done. So normally the challenge always comes is that to provide security, we try to fit the people to the task of security by asking them to do the things that we require them to do rather than fitting the security task to the people so that it fits in with the way they, they want to work. And, and this is really one of the fundamental challenges. The human factors cannot be isolated from how security is delivered on a more technical level. Human behaviors, of course, have an impact on the security of systems. But equally, we can also think of humans as a resource who can help us improve the security, security of our systems. A really great example of this is the Harry Potter uh, books uh, or movies and uh, mm. passwords are a great example in there uh, as as you can see that people have to always remember these passwords and if you have the password then you can enter the system and in one of the books and, and movies one of the people has to actually write down the passwords because the passwords keep changing all the time and <laughs> and we can think of them uh, think of that scenario in most of our work lives where password policies require you to choose change passwords or remember really really complicated passwords. Yeah, one of the things uh, that you highlight here in uh, in the publication is this notion of fitting the task to the human. And one of the elements of there is dealing with the limitations uh, that people have with their own capabilities. Uh, that's an interesting element that I don't think I'd really thought about much before. So we humans are very interesting uh, uh, beings. We, we have a lot of capabilities, but we naturally have our limitations. So for instance, you know, if, if you have to remember lots and lots of uh, things, in this case, the example we are using is passwords, then at some point your mental capacity is reached and you find it hard to to remember. The same goes with remembering lots and lots of PIN numbers or remembering very complicated authentication mechanisms. So the natural challenge is that we, we often give, uh, as part of security, humans a lot of sort of additional tasks to do without really necessarily uh, recognizing that they may be putting additional strain, mental or physical, onto people. And there is all sorts of studies that show that, for instance, when you try to type passwords on small pop-up keyboards on phones, then they are a lot harder to do and there is more uh, margin for error. Uh, Similarly, if you have to remember or copy from one 
device to another device, a complicated thing, or even a number, a set of numbers, then that adds an extra mental or, or physical load. And in this regard, for example, we can take two-factor authentication as an example of uh, uh, of how this adds to an additional workload. Now, two-factor authentication is whereby you may have one factor, in this case, a password, for instance, or a login that your organization might provide. And the second factor may be something like a, a fob or a key that you carry or a code that is sent to your your phone or or any similar similar thing. But if you now think about it, every time you have to log into your uh, system, your task of which was initially the task of authenticating, which was remembering and then typing in a password, has gone from remembering and typing in a password to now extracting an additional device and using it in some way or copying information from one device to another device so that you can actually Mm. log into the system. And you have to do this, in many cases, every time you leave your uh, computer or device to go and do right. something because you lock it and you come back. And that creates additional mental and physical workload. Yeah, and and I think it's important uh, to, to recognize that notion of fatigue when it comes to that. And, and uh, if you frustrate people too much, they may look for workarounds. They could end up thwarting your security practices. Uh, uh, absolutely, and alarm fatigue is a well-known, well-known phenomenon. Uh, w- we have all done it, right? You know that error mm. message pops up on your on your computer, and you click it away because it pops out so many times that at some point you are completely, uh, completely desensitized to the uh, to these kind of error messages. And the history of alarm fatigue or ignoring error messages goes way back. Uh, you know, the Tarak 25 incident, you know, the radiotherapy machine that used to accidentally burn people. It was exactly that, that there were all these obscure or cryptic error messages that were arising and people were effectively clicking, in that case, sort of uh, uh, clicking a key to get uh, to, to put them away. And, and we do that in terms of security as well, because we raise far too many alarms. And often when the alarms are raised, it's also not clear to the user what to do with regards to that. So for instance, if you're being told that there is an error, there is a problem with regards to security, many operating systems nowadays, for instance, require you to give applications specific access to your, uh, uh, to your files. Mm-hmm. But no, normally it doesn't really, uh, you don't really have any clarity as to what is going to happen with that access. And the general tendency for, for people is to just click yes, because you want to use the application and you right. want to be able to get the functionality. There are other examples, for instance, you know, when users are setting up mobile phones, they are keen to, of course, get to use the device, use its various functionalities. So they will click through through the original setup and accept all sorts of uh, permissions, which they perhaps with more thought and time may not be willing to do. And, and that's really where the problem lies uh, in the sense that, you know, alarm fatigue means that we get used to ignoring the messages that come, be it as users of, of, uh, of computing devices or people who work in, for example, security operations centers. You know, you, you may be seeing so many alarms coming from, say, intrusion detection systems and so on and so forth that at some point you don't really know which ones to focus on and which ones not. Yeah, one of the elements uh, you focus on here, which I found interesting, was this notion of interaction context that you have to take into account uh, the, the, the conditions uh, by which people are interacting with their devices. 
Uh, yes, of course. And, you know, there can be all sorts of uh, factors. So, for instance, we no longer sit in uh, just in our offices and use computers, which have sort of massive screens and, and maybe some particular care for ambient lighting. We use devices outside. So, for example, glare from the light and the sun can create um, its own problems in uh, being able to easily see devices and what's on the screen. I already mentioned things like small uh, small keyboards and those that may have their own challenges. A noise, you know, so for instance, if you're trying to use the equipment in a noisy environment, in, in a in a hot environment, it impacts the device's capabilities and infects the humans affects the humans' capabilities. Uh, and all these factors need to be taken into account. But in addition to the capabilities and limitations of the device, we also have to think about that people may have also particular requirements. So for example, children or elderly people may have particular requirements and may have different types of reflexes, people who may have particular uh, mobility uh, issues or or other 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 uh, uh, potential uh, disabilities and things like that. That 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 all has an impact on how people may or may not find it easy to use uh, these kind of security mechanisms. That is not to say that security is not a useful thing, and we do need security as a way to authenticate into devices. But the question we should always ask is: Does it fit in with the normal workflow? of what people do, or does it create far too many uh, distractions, which means that in the end, people just want to get the task that they want to do done, whether it's their work task or, for example, engaging with their family or friends on social media or anything else. And hence, that's why they would find workarounds or start to engage in practices that will lead to more insecure systems. Well, you have a whole section here on human error, most people would say, well, of course, uh, human error would be a factor here. But I think about this and uh, how many of us have, you know, accidentally clicked on the wrong thing or pressed the wrong button. And, and you think to yourself, oh, I wish I could get that click back or, or now what did I do? And, and so it strikes me that this, the folks who are designing these security systems have to account for that. So I think there is two sides to human error. Um, hmm. uh, we, we, we humans are fallible. You know, as you say, we, we all make mistakes. But sometimes it is an actual error or even an intentional choice. So, mm. for instance, you know, you, you may accidentally do something or may not follow a security procedure because you are distracted or something like that. Now, that is, that is potentially an error. But often the problem is that the error is not necessarily attributable to the human making a mistake. It's the design of the system and what is often referred to as latent design conditions within the system lead to that error coming to pass or that that particular situation coming to pass. So if you take your example of, you know, how many of us have not accidentally clicked on a link, but embedded links in emails are there to be clicked on, right? So mm. why, why do we have them if we don't want people to click on them? In the first right, instance, right. right? So the point is that there are always, in the core design of systems, there are conditions that are created which are great for people to be able to do their job because you can click on a link and you can do that. But now we can't immediately say to people, well, hang on, now that's, that's your mistake that you clicked on the link. How do you know which link is malicious and which one is not? Of course, there are uh, sort of particular mechanisms out there that allow you to test for that, but that is then yet an additional workload on the user. Similarly, mm. if we always sort of say to people to check the, for example, the lock on the uh, on the website because you can then see that the link is secure and using HTTPS. However, if you go and click on that lock and look at the certificate messages, 
many people with sort of strong technical ability won't be able to tell you what it means necessarily and whether they can mm. really say whether it's correct. So what about the mass majority of users? We always need to think about the f- fact that errors can be an active failure on part of the human where they may consciously or unconsciously not follow a security procedure. And that has to be investigated and fixed and, you know, perhaps more, more guidance or training provided or other actions to be taken. But a large majority of issues, for example, things like phishing, succeeding or uh, those kind of things arise because there are latent conditions within the systems, which means that people are used to working in particular ways and it is a perfectly normal way of working. And then they have to now almost stop and ask the question every time a link comes through. And if you think, if you're getting several hundred emails a day and, Mm. you know, half of them have embedded links, you can't stop and check every single email. You want to get your job done. Yeah, it also strikes me that, you know, I I know I've been faced with that that pop-up message that that asks me to make a decision, you know, choose 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 A or choose B and and uh the 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 um the options have been written in such a way in in uh, impenetrable uh, English that I I sit there banging my head against the desk saying I don't understand what they're asking me. I do not understand the choice that they're asking me to make. And it, so I mean it strikes me that um that there's a design element here that the the people who are crafting these messages for us to make these decisions they have an important part to play in this as well. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. There is uh, the usual cliche that you know sort of uh, often system designers design systems for people like themselves, uh, and and we 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 have to we have to understand that you know the vast majority of users are people who are very different from the from the system designers, and there, there is a. There is a lot of work in the human-computer interaction space, which is about actually understanding how a wide range of users actually understand understand the systems as they currently are. When you're designing new systems, including security systems, how do you actually integrate them with those daily work practices? And you know, a really good example of this is the uh, the re- recent, uh, well, the previously what was called the cookie law and the new. Uh, GDPR requirement on all websites, mm. and certainly in in Europe, we, we have this. When you when you go to a uh, go to a website, you you are now encountered with saying this website uses cookies. Do you want to allow to use cookies? Okay, there are interesting studies. Many people don't understand. Actually, a lot of people don't understand, and not they should have to as to what is a cookie in this regard. But then now you have an option of going into these settings and try and decide which cookies do you want to allow and which ones do you not wish to allow and so on. And again, we, in the interest of protecting citizens from, uh, say, privacy violations, we've given this huge additional task to the users. And in a lot of the cases, users just simply click whatever the default option is because they want to use the information on the website or the service on the Mm. website. And I think that's really exactly the problem, that if you go into some of these settings, they are quite quite impenetrable. They also all look, in many cases, very different from each other. And in some Mm. cases, all the cookies will be enabled by default, and in some cases, probably in a good sense, all will be disabled by default. But (laughs) there is no consistency. And as a user, you find this kind of real complexity when... All you want to do is to go on to the internet and get some information or use a service. How fair is it to place so much of this on the user? Is, is, it, is it realistic to make that expectation? 
no, I mean, we are back to this issue of fatigue and there is sort of alarm fatigue we talked about. There is also issues of compliance fatigue. So, you know, if, if we think about, you know, putting the requirements on to users to comply with very, very complicated security policies, that leads to its own fatigue in that sense. And, you know, at some point, it all sort of starts to interfere with, with the task and also really impacts, you know, uh, uh, people's um, emotional state with regards to security. And as a result, security becomes this grudge sale, right? So it's mm. not something that you do because it's going to make you do your job better or make you do your job properly. It's something you do because you have to do, because it's a barrier you have to overcome. To, to get get your job done. And as a result, in most organizations, security becomes a grudge sale. And the only way to change that is that to have a more positive security culture, we have to stop making security this thing that stops people from doing what they want. It needs to become an enabler which helps them to do their job more swiftly, more easily, and have confidence that, for example, the things that they are doing, for example, the people they are communicating with are the people that they think they are communicating with. There are interesting um, email domain name uh, authentication systems that allow you to actually know that the email has come from within a particular organization or not, and things like that. So there are positive ways in which we can do security, which actually reduces the workload of some of these additional security policies that we require users to follow. And that, that creates a more positive security culture. I think there is also the concept of just cultures, which again comes from the safety domain. What we need to really think about is that how these things are reported. As you said earlier in your example, you know, how many of us have clicked a link? And many times people don't actually want to go and then tell someone that they clicked on a link which may have been malicious because mm. fear, fear of reprisals, fear of shame, you know, or saying, how could you be such a, do such a, such a silly thing? And that is not the culture we should be operating. If we want organizations to be secure, then we have to have systematic reporting mechanisms. We have to have mechanisms whereby people can report these kind of issues and not feel that they will have any disciplinary action or reprisals. Of course, if they have actively made a mistake, then also they should own up to it. But again, there has to be a way for them to then learn from that. And those just cultures are really, really fundamentally important if you want to create a more positive culture and not security being this kind of uh, really grudgy task that we, we have to do every single time. So one of the elements you cover here is uh, software developers and their responsibilities when it comes to security. Um, what do you have to share there? So I think we often think about sort of human factors and we we think about users and users who use the end products. But software developers, of course, are also humans and they're also people and they come across the similar struggles when they are developing these kind of systems. So, for example, they have to use application programming interfaces uh, or cryptographic APIs. They often are also very, very complicated to use. So as a result, software developers face usability issues uh, from that perspective as they are writing software. So when we are talking about making things easier for users, we have to think about not just the end users of the systems, but also those who are developing applications that go to those users. Because unless we are providing those software developers with usable tools to be able to write more secure software, it makes things very, very difficult for them to do. And as a result, that leads to more insecurity in the software that users, the end users receive. The other key thing to also, of course, think about it is that 
what we are asking uh, software developers to do. And if they find things complicated, then they may build in very complicated workflows for uh, for users as well. And we see that in some of the sort of work around things like, you know, more um, embedded devices or Internet of Things devices and things uh, things like that, that ultimately the way to secure those devices can become very, very complicated for the end user because there are very complicated workflows that software developers build in. And some of these are because of the nature of the devices, but also some of these are due to the tools that are at the disposal of the software developers and the kind of software development tools that they use and the kind of security analyses that they can use. And there is, again, some very good guidance out there as with the kind of principles that, you know, those providing these kind of tools and application programming interfaces for software developers should be considering how they should be making them more usable for software developers and hence making it easier for them to produce more secure software, which in the end means more secure software for end users. That was Professor Awais Rashid from Bristol University. To learn more about the Cybok project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.